Hi, I'm John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the Public Policy This Week podcast. If you like what you hear on this show, please consider leaving us a review or telling a friend about us. Also, please consider subscribing so you'll receive a brand new edition of the show every time we make one available. We hope you find Public Policy This Week entertaining and informative, and thanks again for listening. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, September 16th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week. This show is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look into a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. Hosting the show today is Mr. Steve Swiggum. Steve is a local farmer who has worked as both a teacher and a coach, and for 28 years, he was a member of the Minnesota House of Representatives, serving as Speaker of the House for eight of those years. Additionally, Steve is currently Vice Chair of the University of Minnesota Board of Regents. He completed his college education in Northfield at St. Olaf College, where he was a basketball and football player. And sitting across from me is Rich Larson. Uh, Rich is news director here at Kim Radio, KYMN. Uh, like me, he is also alumnus of St. Olaf College. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, Rich. Um, yeah, yeah, sir. Uh, and he has had two daughters uh, go through the University of Minnesota system. And we bring that up because today on Public Policy This Week, we are honored to have, and I mean honored, to have the University of Minnesota President Joan Gable join us in the studio. President Gable was born in New York City and grew up in Atlanta. At 16 years old, she entered Haverford College in Haverford, Pennsylvania, and earned her bachelor's degree in philosophy. After earning a law degree at the University of Georgia Law School, she worked as an attorney in Atlanta and as editor-in-chief of the American Business Law Journal before joining the faculty of Georgia State University as a professor of legal studies. She then moved on to Florida State University, where she was a part department chair and professor of business law in a professor of business law. In 2010, the University of Missouri named her the dean of the Robert J. Tulaski Senior College of Business. And in 2015, she was named provost of the University of South Carolina, where she also served as executive vice president. In 2019, she was named the 17th president of the University of Minnesota and became the first woman to hold that title. As president, she oversees 67,000 students and 26,000 employees. In her three-plus years at the helm of the university system, she has guided five campuses through a pandemic and social upheaval and instituted the university's comprehensive strategic plan, Impact 2025, which has had wide-ranging and far-reaching success. Just this week, U.S. News & World Report named the University of Minnesota one of the 25 best public universities in the country, its highest ranking in 12 years. President Gable, welcome to the KYMN studios, to Northfield, and to Public Policy This Week. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. I'm going to just adjust your microphone just a little bit so we can get you a little more directly on Yeah, what you, you all can't see is that he had to move it down because I'm <laughs> short. <laughs> now, now, we don't, we don't worry about those things at all. Um, well, thank you for being here. Thank you for, I, you, you were wandering, uh, not wandering, but you were walking the streets of, of, of Northfield. How do you find our, uh, our fair little town here? Charming. Yes. We, I've never been here. You know, I, I've lived here for four years, but my 
ability to explore was really limited during yeah. the pandemic. So whenever we have something like this that gets us into a new spot, I always try to leave a little time to take it in and have a treat or have coffee or whatever. <laughs> it's really lovely here. I, I do have to ask you a question. Uh, Atlanta, uh, Missouri, Florida, South Carolina. President Gable, how are you enjoying the winters here in Minnesota? Well, Rich, you may be surprised to hear that you're not the first person to ask me that. <laughs> Shocking. So, <laughs> um, so my family is actually from the Northeast, which is where I was born. Mm -hmm. So we were in cold winters, and I did part of my education in Canada. Okay. So I had been in cold winters before, but it had been a long time, <laughs> and I needed a, the first one really right. to adjust. Right. But now, I mean, there's a whole lifestyle that only happens happens when winter comes that now I look forward to so does my husband that's we great. really don't mind it at all and we're feeling the fe the effects of fall and we're excited about it that's fantastic all right well um if you don't mind I'm going to break with president this morning uh and ask the first question of our interview to my co-host Mr. Swiggum uh, because uh as as co-host or co-host as, co as vice chair of the uh, uh University of Minnesota um, boy, I'm getting all mixed up here. As vice chair of the Board of Regional Minnesota, you were uh, part of the selection committee that, uh, that, that brought President Gable on board. What was it about uh, President Gable, uh, Steve, that uh, uh, the regions liked? And uh, when, when, when we hired, when we, I, we, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a taxpayer, I can say we. <laughs> uh, when, when she was hired, it really did feel like immediately like a big win. For the university what was it about president gable that that uh, the, the the regions found uh so good uh rich i had uh, three years ago the chance to serve on the selection committee as well i think there were 23 of us uh, around the university system from uh, professors to staff persons to students to mm -hmm. uh, to a couple or three regions uh, when uh, President Gable, now President Gable, at that time it was <laughs> Provost Gable, I That's believe. That's right, yeah. Uh, when Provost Gable walked into the room, uh, she's one of those persons that immediately knock your socks off. Right. Um, she came into the room. Uh, I think we interviewed uh, 10 different persons. In mm -hmm. person, we interviewed 10 people for uh, the position of presidency. Um, Joan came into the room, knocked your socks off, was prepared. This is a teaching point. This is a, 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 a teaching point for those who might be interviewing. Joan had prepared herself. So when she was interviewed and different uh, people on the committee asked questions, she responded in their first name. Oh. She responded to who was there. She'd prepared to who were the 23 people, where they came from, uh, had prepared for uh, you know where the University of Minnesota was and had the vision the strategy of where she wanted to take us in five and ten years, uh, that strategy uh, uh, certainly played out. Um, but there was this special quality about her that rose her above all the other nine people that we interviewed. Not that They were all great. You know, oh, yeah. you can imagine One interviewing for a presidency of the University of Minnesota. Yeah. Competition's pretty high. Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, but this lady here, uh, Joan Gable, uh, stood sh head and shoulders above everybody else, and uh, it was an easy selection for Minnesota. Oh, that's fantastic. A nice choice, by the way, Steve. Well yeah. done. Well okay. done. Um, President Gable, as, as I mentioned in the, uh, the opening, uh, U.S. News & World Report ranked the U number 23 on this list of best public universities. As a Minnesota taxpayer who prioritizes education, and as the father of two daughters who are now products of the university system. Uh, I, I take a lot of pride in that. Can, can you tell us, 
in the grand scheme of things, how does that ranking impact uh, things at the U and at, for the university system? Well, I'm glad that you're proud. <laughs> Parents of students are a really important constituency, right. so I'm very <laughs> delighted to hear that. We're very proud, too. The, uh, the rankings are a fair-weathered friend. You'll hear us say that when they're not going well, why you shouldn't listen to them, right. but when they are going well, why they're really important. So sure. they went very well for us this year for some very specific and legitimate reasons that really tie to that strategy that Steve referred to a few moments ago, that we're focused on students, we're focused on making sure faculty have what they need to serve those students and do their own research. We're very focused on engaging our alumni community, and they do that through different ways, but that also includes their philanthropic support Mm -hmm. and a few other attributes that all go into the ranking. They're all part of the formula. So by going back to basics and really thinking about our core purpose, why we're here, how we serve the state of Minnesota, but do so at world-class levels, also aligns with the formula that U.S. News uses. And so they recognized the good work that was happening with retention rates, graduation rates, debts going down over 40% of our students graduating with no debt at all. That's fantastic. It is fantastic. And there are a lot of people to thank for that, too many to list. But there are a lot of people who make that possible. But most notably, the Board of Regents who work with us on making sure that total cost of attendance stays as low as possible and that we have scholarship support for those who need it most, which is what we what we aim to provide. So they also look at the percent of the alums who engage with the university, and mm-hmm. we are very proud to have a very active and engaged group of alums and friends, parents, and otherwise. In this state, everyone is a gopher, whether they went to the U or not, and <laughs> That's that very is true. very much to our benefit in real ways, not just the fun of it, but also it helps our students, it helps us do research, it helps us do extension, it helps us do everything. And so all of those things are part of the ranking formula. And so we were able to make the jump. And we're really glad, we're gratified really is probably Mm -hmm. the word I'm looking for, to see a lot of people doing a lot of hard work, but have it be in this really obvious, measurable way. Right. President Gable, you deserve a lot of credit for this ranking, specifically. I know you don't want to take it. I know you want to spread a lot of the uh, rewards around to people, which is appropriate. Uh, But you deserve credit. Uh, uh, When you came here uh, a year ago, you started on our Impact 2025 vision, our strategy for uh, where Minnesota wants to go, where the university wants to be, the strategy to get there. And and I'm sure this ranking, uh, top 25, this is pretty special, is a direct result of the uh, planning research that you that you have done, um, Joan. The uh, the fall semester is off and running. Um, it's exciting uh, to see all these new students on campus. Uh, uh, we've taken part in a couple of the uh, uh, the new campus activities, both you and I together over the the past couple of weeks. But tell me about the new class. What what's your hopes and dreams for this class? I I know it's I think the second largest class ever. Mm-hmm. and the most diverse class ever in the history of the of University of Minnesota. Yes. Talk to us about your hopes. And I'll add one more statistic about them. Seven mm-hmm. out of ten of them are Minnesotan. 
So oh. it very much allows us to feel the service to the state in the way in which they arrive. And we have the same hopes and dreams. I mean, my children, you know, are, my youngest is still in college. And you have the same hopes and dreams for every single one of those students as you do for your own children, that they are able to do whatever it is they want and need <clears throat> so that they can be their best self. So that when they finish that they have the skills for sure for that first job, but they, I mean, I'll use some higher ed speak, that they also have competencies so that they can live their life the way they want to, that they can discern, that they can enjoy, that they can make their choices about their professional life or their personal life or their politics or their faith or whatever with information and in whatever way feels right to them. They're not guessing. They know how to find what they need to live the life that they want to live in all the different wonderful ways that we all live our lives. And a great big flagship state university with campuses all over the state, like the University of Minnesota, that's what we should do. And our hope is that we do do <laughs> and provide exactly that for every one of those students. There are 6,700 of them, give or take, and there should be 6,700 different ways that that happens. The most diverse class ever, too. Uh, yes. Can you just speak about that a second? I think that's part of the uh, Impact 2025, your vision. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the state of Minnesota is diverse and changing mm -hmm. in ways that we should meet. We should meet all of the high school students as they come up through K through 12 where they are and be their first choice educational opportunity. That's how we see it. And so as high school students change, the University of Minnesota changes and we have to adjust the way we do things times change. You know, campuses look different than when you or I were students. They look different today than they even did last year in, in more subtle ways, but still very real ways. And so that affects the services we provide. It affects the way in which we provide financial support. It affects things like student mental health, which we hear a lot in the news. 18 to 24-year-olds nationally, not just at the U, have uh, over 40 percent of people in that age group have at some point in their life received a mental health diagnosis, mm -hmm. which is really just stop you in your tracks statistic. And some of those groups are disproportionately affected. And we want to make sure that we're sensitive to that, that we're distributing services where they need to be. But I'm very proud to say that our retention rate, even during the pandemic, was at a record high, 93.5% returning. And so what that means is, for sure, they're learning in the classroom what they need to learn, but they're also getting what they need to be successful, which is more than the classroom. And we're really getting very good, in my opinion, It's and I can say that because it's a lot of people who do it, uh, at making sure students get what they need so that when they're done, they can do whatever it is they want to do. Well, that leads right directly into my next question. Uh, just looking at the demographics, um, Generation Z now makes up the majority uh, of college students across country. This is a generation that has seen economic and social upheaval in their formative years. Um, and if you believe the market research, this generation tends to be more frugal, favors direct communication. Um, one article I read said that uh, they're more likely to question authority for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that, that they're used to getting answers on their own. Um, what is, oh, they also seem to value self-care 
uh, much more than any other generation that came before them. So what is the responsibility of the university when it comes to meeting the needs and really the demands of, of the modern college student? And how is the university adapting to a new generation? God loves St. Olaf College. When I when I got there, it was I was told, well, this is how it is, and you're, you know, okay, this is how it is, and this is these are the rules. But how has that changed with uh, with you know a new generation or a couple new generations? Yeah, I went to a school very much like St. Olaf, so yeah. that was my experience too as a student. And students will say things to me today that I'm like, and in my own. <laughs> In my own crazy head, I'm like, wow, I would have never said that. Right. But, you know, times have changed. And I have, it's hard for me to answer that question as the president of the University of Minnesota. I actually think of that, as you say it, Rich, like a, as a mom, sure. right? Because my kids are this exact age. Yep. And I've watched this. There's seven years between my oldest and my youngest. And my youngest is in Gen Z. And my oldest is a young millennial. So watch the, just that change yeah. in between my own children. And they do have different expectations than we did. So they do want, of course, to learn what they need to learn in order to be employable, just like their parents mm -hmm. want and just mm -hmm. like society wants. But they want a lot more than that. They want uh, open access to information. They don't believe in boundaries. So even things that may seem obvious to us, like having to sign up for a library card, like we all did when we were kids, they want no barrier at all. Information is a commodity. They want to be able to get it everywhere. And so simply providing information the other side of that coin is that's not enough. Mm -hmm. So education is much more than just saying what the facts are right. or what the facts might be or could be. And so it changes the way they learn. They're obviously very fluent in technology. Mm -hmm. They expect things to be available to them on those platforms quickly, easily, and inexpensively, if not free. Yep. And they also want what we in our generation would call work-life balance, they don't use that <laughs> phrase. And when you say things like that, they sort of look at you like, okay, mom, you know. <laughs> but the, the, they want to have a lot of autonomy over their time. Now, that does not mean they're not hardworking. They are incredibly hardworking mm -hmm. in my observation and have been through a lot, as you were describing. This generation was born as the Twin Towers came down. Mm -hmm. For example, I personally was about six weeks away from delivering my youngest when the towers came down. They came of age during the bubble bursting recession. Mm -hmm. And now they're reaching adulthood right now during COVID and other uh, really trying social times. And so they're gritty and resilient, but they express it differently than we would. They want to be able to do um, their work, but they also want to have time for whatever other interests they have. Yeah. They're very service oriented, a lot of volunteerism, a lot of community engagement. They're involved politically. They're interested politically in much more of a broad spectrum of ways than you might think. And they want the time to be able to understand what's going on in the world. And they insist. And so we, we are learning to change to meet them, not to make it easier, not to take mm -hmm. the rigor away, mm -hmm. but to change the rubric of expecting what we might have done when we just took the authority at the school the way that we did when you were at St. Olaf and I was at Haverford, that if your teacher said you need to study for this long, well, you know, then you studied for that mm -hmm. long. Okay. And now the students would say, well, do I really need this? Or 
is there some actual core piece of this that actually is what I need? And then I can use that time to go apply it, to go serve with it, to go question it. And that's what we're adjusting to. Yeah. Yeah. So are there, not to put you on the spot, but are there anything specific, any specific uh, initiatives or programs that you guys have put into uh, not just not just keep your your, the students happy, but even to attract uh, to uh, recruits? Oh, yes, absolutely. And and we think what we're doing is great, but all universities and colleges are doing things like this. I mean, the the fact that as students evolve, we need to evolve is just part of our, you know, professional work. But the things that we do, so we have a lot of things that happen outside the classroom now. We refer to this as beyond the classroom. So the fact that faculty use technology more mm-hmm. often or, or use applied examples more often is uh, becoming a truism. But what do you do the other 65% of your time as a college student, university student, when you're not in class is something that we're curating more and more with student organizations, service learning opportunities, support, things like mental health, career counseling, other things that you might need, wellness and well-being, then making sure that people are exercising, nutritional advice, making sure they understand how to spend their money, financial advice and education. This is a big part of why debt has gone down, Mm -hmm. by the way, is because they're becoming more sophisticated about how much they need or don't need, more importantly. And the whole package of that is what we think of now as an education. So we might have anchored 75, 80%, I don't know the actual percentage of classroom learning as the core of education, and then a little sliver of this other stuff. When I was a student, it would have been very easy to go through school and never be in a student organization or never make a public presentation or never do any outside the classroom work and be just fine. Nowadays, you, there's just more to it. And we think that it's better preparation. We think that they are making us better. That's great. President Gable, uh, <clears throat> let's uh, talk tuition for a second. Mm-hmm. Under your leadership, uh, two years ago, uh, the university held tuition flat, zero, zero percent. Uh, last year, one and a half percent, if I remember correctly. That's right. That I voted for. Yes. <laughs> with, with your leadership. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, this year right now, three and a half percent. That at a time inflation is running eight and a half to nine percent. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the background decision making you go through as you try to make sure. And we'd all like to keep tuition steady, right? I mean, that's uh, that's a given. You'd like to keep it steady, but with no more money coming from the legislature, no increase from the legislature, which we got none last year, with inflation being eight and a half percent, and of course, we have increased costs uh, uh, just of faculty and staff salaries. I mean, they deserve increases, too, you know, to meet the, the effects of inflation. Um, tell us a little bit about the balance you bring forward to, from accountability of, to the student tuition. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things we right. do, obviously, is try to strike that balance. I mean, we would love for tuition to always be flat or even go down. I mean, there's no pleasure in raising tuition. It's the last mile for us. But there are only a few ways that we can meet increased costs. And so we have to give our employees raises just like everybody else. But also, I mean, we pay 
utility bills. We have to buy equipment. I mean, we have the same kind of expenses on the business side of things that any business would have, and, and we don't get to control those costs. We have to pay those bills. And so we always um, actively seek partnership from the state, which is a very important component of how we do what we do really well, but they don't give us enough to meet those increased expenses. And so we have only a couple of other ways to generate revenue. We have tuition, and then we have what we broadly call auxiliary, like if people buy our t-shirts or the coffee mugs or whatever, and that's all really nice, but it, it is a very nominal contribution to the overall picture. So Every year, we go through a really robust analysis, and we do it in the light of day. We discuss it in front of the board. Anybody who would like to see it can just tune in for one of our scintillating board meetings and, <laughs> and, and join in the conversation. But we've made an overarching commitment to keep tuition below inflation. Now, a couple of years ago when we made that promise, that was a real promise because inflation was at like one, one and a half percent. We, we were at zero and then at one and a half percent. Well, now inflation's at nine percent or almost nine percent. We're clearly not going to raise tuition by that much. That would be unacceptable uh, for us or for families considering the U. So we were at three percent and then we make up the difference through cost cutting. So we get evaluated for that. There are different, we sort of get ranked for that too. You don't get as much attention for that as you do in US News. But we are right in the middle of the pack in our peer group for how much we spend on our overhead. But importantly, we're going down, down, down each year relative to other schools. So we manage our overhead internally in terms of how much we can control and what we spend in the back room so that what we do in the front room, in the classroom, in research and in service, we can continue to make new investments in. If you're going to pay tuition at all, we want to make sure that it, you get a return on that investment. You, know, you as a family have choices about where you would send your child and your child has choices about what they would do with those years that they're in school. And so we're very pleased that we're able to graduate so many students with no debt. Those who do take on debt have an, a negligible default rate. And what that says to us is that it's, it's uh, this is a touchy phrase, but it, that it's good debt in that it's put them in a higher earning category and then they can afford to pay it back, which is an important metric for us. And that the different places that rank return on investment always have the University of Minnesota in the top tier, that if you're going to pay tuition, what you're also going to get is a really valuable total three-dimensional degree that will prepare you for your job, sure, but will prepare you for your life. And so Everything goes into keeping tuition as low as possible while maintaining that quality and commitment. President, I think in your three years of service here, you have done a wonderful job of balancing, of balancing the uh, program for students with the state support, which unfortunately last year was zero uh, increase. Um, around the country, by the way, I think we're seeing uh, almost in every state, higher education has received not necessarily less dollar amount, but less as a percentage of the budget than they have uh, previously. And, That's true. And you've uh, balanced it very well with the needs of, uh, well, uh, certainly becoming more efficient. If my numbers are correct, I think uh, our total uh, university staff workforce, we're down about 1,000 FTEs from uh, three years ago. Is that not correct? That's right. FTE is full-time employee, and we 
our headcount, which is the term that our HR department would use, <laughs> tells us that we're down a thousand. Now that's good news in terms of overhead. It means that the people who are working are right. doing more. Sure. And so then we need to make sure that their salary is competitive or we will lose them, which we don't want to do. So it saves us uh, some money. It creates efficiency. It's a lot of opportunity around efficiency when your headcount comes down. But we also need to be conscious that their salaries remain competitive. Every decision has a consequence. Exactly. Uh, exactly. For our listening audience, you are listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. I'm Rich Larson with my co-host Steve Swigum, and we are talking with the president of the University of Minnesota, Joan Gable. Uh, president Gable, in your first year uh, as president of the university, you were faced with the challenges of a global pandemic. What was the financial impact uh, to the university system of the pandemic? How has it affected the way the university seeks to educate its students? And, you know, Steve pointed out that uh, the incoming class um, uh, is, is the second largest the university has ever had. Does that mean we've bounced back? And I should mention, and last year's class was the largest. So oh. it's two years in a row of record enrollment, record demand. And from last year to this year, we had a 6% increase in applications. So demand is high. In that regard, we've absolutely bounced back. And I think that that says a lot about where our community is, but mm -hmm. also it says a lot about the things that the U is doing to serve that community. And we're very glad that students find that interesting and we're very glad to see them <laughs> financially it was a big hit there there were different i mean we're still doing some of the math but it was in the neighborhood of a 300 million dollar hit and that's a lot of money yes. <laughs> the federal government helped us with a little more than half of that which was helpful we pulled from our reserves our rainy day fund which helped and the rest we are sort of paying ourselves back uh, in order to cover the costs that we incurred that were pandemic specific, but also to continue to invest in new things, new technology, building maintenance and salary increases that we've had to make. So we're still a couple years away from feeling like it's a completely flat return. But because the student demand is high, we're we're not losing any sleep over it. Our, our modeling looks really stable. Right. Okay, uh, Richie, uh, I kid Joan every once in a while that uh, when we hired her in the uh, spring of 2019, that in her job description, we did not put in there responding <laughs> to the global <laughs> pandemic, responding to the COVID concerns. Wait, you couldn't That's see your, that coming? Uh, Steve, imagine well, that. No. It, was, it was not in her job description, but uh, she has responded to the crisis and it, financially it was a crisis for us. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, it was a crisis a, for um, sure. Uh, besides the health concerns, uh, financially it was uh, very difficult, but she's responded extremely, extremely well. And, and the school is still digging out. Like you said, you had to you'd draw from your reserves, and I would imagine that that means the reserves have to be paid back. And, exactly. Yeah. Now, we had a very good year on the uh, in the stock market, and that affects us positively last year. This year, not so much. Yeah. So we're, it's going to take us a little time, but we do long-term projections and we're comfortable with where we are. Budget is balanced and we're not doing it on the back. Most importantly, we are not doing it on the backs of students by holding tuition very Thank low. Thank you very much for that. That's You're good welcome. news. Joan, the, uh, the university's promise uh, scholarship 
uh, I promise, free tuition program provides uh, funds for students whose families make less than $50,000 a year. That's the free tuition. We have another program called Promise Scholarship that I think uh, goes up to $120,000. Yeah, Promise Plus. Mm -hmm. Promise Plus. Uh, Tell us about the uniqueness of this program. Is it unique? Uh, um, Is there something especially important to Minnesota and Minnesotans for this access to our uh, land-grant institu- institution? Yes. I mean, the key thing that the Promise Program does is put those at the highest financial need at the lowest risk for burdensome debt. That's really the goal, is to make sure those with the highest financial need do not need to draw debt that then limits them when they're finished. So we give a lot of financial aid to families that earn more than $50,000, but at $50,000, there's a promise that it will cover your tuition for the time it takes you to earn the degree within a reasonable period of time. And so that is just a, a, a relief for the families that have to stretch the furthest in order to pay the tuition. There's also, I should mention, a mental health component to this. Earlier when I said that student mental health affects different groups disproportionately, families whose uh, income is lower is one of those groups. And so we do see students whose families have the highest financial need often um, failing, the term we would use is failing to progress, not failing classes, but failing to stay in school because of the financial pressure and what that does, what pressure does to all of us hits them harder. By having access to this program, they don't have that pressure. And so they are more likely to finish, and then we know how much that improves their earning potential, how much that improves their social mobility. And so it's not as if if your family earns $50,001 that you don't get any help. I mean, it's all on a sliding scale, and we always have the Mm need-based scholarships plus merit-based scholarships. But if your family makes $50,000 or less, it's guaranteed. Joan, the, uh, the Native American Promise Tuition Program also begins this fall. Why was this important to you? Tell us why you got this program started. So this program is part of an overall commitment by the university that's in our strategic plan to recognize the history of the state and what that's meant for the institution and what it's meant for some of our institutional partners. And it hasn't always been... uh, as the way that we might have liked for it to be right. when we look over our history and what that means for us as a land-grant university, as a mission-bound institution, is that where we might not have been at our best, we need to make sure we're at our best now. And that creates a foundation where everyone can come together and work towards a better future. So for us, that includes recognizing a complicated history with the Native American uh, tribes and nations in the state of Minnesota and beyond. At our Morris campus, um, if you are Native American from the United States, really from across uh, the United States or Canada, there are, are very high benefits at Morris. It's tuition free. Really? But for Yes, and that's, that's part great. of the history of that campus. But for the entire system now, any campus, for the Native American nations in Minnesota, we've 
added to the Promise program at a higher level as a recognition of that history. So that's at $75,000. You get the same Promise, and there's a sliding scale Promise up until your family is at an income level where you may not need financial support. And that is an investment in our history and in our future. Um, As a result of that, we saw a huge uptick this year in applications and matriculation by students from the Native American nations in the state of Minnesota, which is very gratifying and gives us a real opportunity to think about how we all work together to make sure everyone can have that best life that we talked about earlier. Joan, the uh, university's budget per year is about $4.2 billion now. We're at a uh, give or take a few hundred thousand. It's $4.2 billion. Um, tell me about the university's efforts You know, as we balance the tuition that you're talking about, uh, maybe no additional support from the state last year, uh, with um, still promoting excellence mm-hmm. and trying to become as efficient as we can. I think uh, there's a new program which you're initiating called Peak. Yes. P E A K. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of what, the, first of all, what the acronym stands for, and then a little bit about our PEAK initiative? Yes. So PEAK stands for Positioned for Excellence, Alignment, and Knowledge. And I'm sort of laughing because everything has to have a cute acronym. Like it doesn't exist if <laughs> you don't give it a cute name. But so just for everyone's understanding, so $4.2 billion, it's a huge number, right? And it, it sort of makes you think that there's just money everywhere. But in fact, um, our expenses go up by over 4% a year normally, Mm -hmm. and we're going to calculate at the end of the year how much they went up this year. Our revenue goes up by less than two. So every year, our costs go up, and you can only cost cut so much. You have to remember, on any given day, we have 67,000 students. We have 26,000 employees. Something like that is requires a big budget in Mm -hmm. order to run well and that if we don't get better every year if we aren't thinking about classroom quality research quality service quality then students will make choices to go someplace else and then things get worse instead of better so we have to continuously reinvest and given that state support has been flat or actually declining depending on how you measure it and that tuition can only go up so much without us actually doing harm to the families that would want to send their student for us well that kind of leaves our own internal processes and trying to cost cut but there's an old adage in operations administration not just in higher ed but in business in general that says you can't cost cut your way to excellence And we believe that. But we also believe that we have to cost cut our way as far as we possibly can and then use that money to invest in excellence. So that's where the acronym Positioned for Excellence, Alignment, and Knowledge comes from. So we are a a decentralized, we have five different campuses, we have colleges, we have a medical school, we have a design college, we have a vet school, we have liberal arts, we have engineering, we have extension, you know, it's it's. Everything, if you think about it, there's almost nothing that you might want to take a class on that we don't teach. And so what happens is that big budget gets distributed in what ultimately feel like relatively small buckets to a lot of different places. And in order to really track that and find the savings, we need to take a totally fresh look at how we distribute the revenue and make sure that we're not missing opportunities 
for savings and also for improving the quality of the backroom services we provide. So the example I give when I was first pitching this to the campus community and to the board was something like printing. So you print in Morris, you print in Crookston, you print in Rochester, you print in the Twin Cities. Printing's expensive. You, we all have printers at home. You got to buy a printer, you got to buy ink, you got to buy paper. Are we thinking about our aggregated printing costs as an institution and then making sure we get the best possible price we can get? Or is each individual department buying their own paper and buying their own ink and paying retail? If you're as big as we are, there should be a dozen or dozens of that printing example where we could find ways to save. And at an institution of our size and complexity, a little bit here and a little bit there adds up, and then we can reinvest in that excellence and quality. I can promise you there's a distribution salesman somewhere who would love to have the university system as an account. (laughs) So yeah. I'm sure. Joan, uh, I tell people, and of course I say this at the board meetings as well, <clears throat> that the university has a wonderful story to tell uh, that we're actually performing pretty well. I, As you know, I, I like to talk about performance. I like to talk about the end result. Um, let's talk about some of the uh, wonderful things, uh, record of performance, I say, that the university has had over the, the past uh, couple of years. Uh, uh, talk to us uh, real quickly about uh, a record year uh, for, for research. Uh, over a billion dollars. Talk to us about, uh, and you already have mentioned the recent graduation rates and the retention rates. Um, uh, Record philanthropy uh, of uh, our, I think it's over $4 billion, is it not, Mm -hmm. that we went through in the the last recent fundraising. Um, Shanghai rankings, uh, 12 departments in the top 25 in the world. Just a record of success of performance. Blank check. Talk to us about all that. Well, this is fun part to talk about, isn't it? <laughs> so, you know, we start with the U.S. news ranking since that's what most families know. And, and being back in the top 25 after 12 years being out of it is a really nice cornerstone that I think everyone can relate to. The Shanghai ranking is uh, refers to a newspaper that's published in Shanghai, but it's really a global ranking of universities. And we're number 44 in the world. So top 45 in the world. In the United States, we're a top 10 research university. And why would an average Minnesotan care about what research happens at the university? Well, a very high amount of our research and this research funding is in healthcare Mm -hmm. and in healthcare discovery and cures. A lot of it is in engineering and sciences. And then it covers all kinds of other things like in the environment and all these other areas that go into that ranking. And that ranking means that the federal government is investing in us at a top 10 level. And every one of those dollars that comes in is an economic development dollar. I mean, we spend that money and hire people. So it it returns to the state of Minnesota to be a top 10 research university. As you mentioned, that research means that we have crossed the billion dollar mark. And that's like being on the top 25 AP ranking for football on Sunday morning, you know, to hit the billion dollar mark in research means we're in very rarefied air, really. And we've now crossed it and maintained it two years in a row. So that puts us solidly in the top 10. But that research also means we're in the top 20 for patents 
and a lot of those patents are in medical technology, not surprisingly, given what industries are here in the state of Minnesota and who we partner with. So that research turns into real things that create intellectual property, that create cures and Mm -hmm. tools and techniques that people use. We hit a record number of startups now, um, and uh, that's all in our strategic plan, patent production, startup production, research funding. So there's a lot of attention going behind that. Um, that puts us at 18th for utility patent production, for those of you who would want to know uh, the actual hard ranking for that. And there's a think tank called Heartland Forward that in 2022 said that we were first in the region for what we call tech transfer, which is turning those creative ideas that researchers have into and then transferring them into real technology that people can use. So we're in a really good momentum. We had this really good incoming class now, two years in a row, seven out of 10 are Minnesotan and most diverse. And they are staying in school, which means that their investment will pay off and they're graduating at record rates. So graduation rates are up and their debt is going down. Debt, by the way, at the University of Minnesota has always been well below the national average. A lot of what you hear in the news about student debt is very real, and it's not to minimize that making the financial investment in your child's education isn't a big investment. But the University of Minnesota debt is way below those sort of Um, very inflammatory numbers that you hear discussed nationally. We're on average $2,000 below the national average for any given student. And as I said earlier, over 40% of our students graduate with no debt at all. So the, the activity of the university in the classroom and in research is going up. The impact of the cost on individual families is going down. And that's all being captured in the rankings. So we're pretty happy with where things are. Joan, it's just a wonderful story of success. It really is. You know, billion dollars in research, uh, new startup businesses, which means jobs for Minnesotans. I mean, these are these are actual actual jobs for our economy. Um, retention of freshmen, um, the development campaign, you have 4.4 yes. billion, maybe just tell us, a, yes, I think record year there as well, if I remember correctly. That's right. So universities rely a lot on generosity and philanthropy from donors. A lot of those student scholarships that we talk about that keep costs down, keep debt down for those that need it the most come from donors. And they support some of the research and they support some of the infrastructure. They're very, it, it's a very important part of our overall budget mix. So we usually raise money for the university through what we call a campaign. And you'll see this at mm-hmm. you know your church or United Way or various other nonprofits. And they take us 10 years. And the last one was at a goal of $4 billion. That was the Driven Campaign. It finished at $4.4 billion, so 10% above goal and early. So very successful and a whole team of people who make that happen. But really importantly, after campaigns, sometimes you see what we call the valley, and everybody can imagine what that is, where when it ends, people are like, okay, I'll go. We've actually, since the campaign finished, had another record year. So three years in a row, we've had record philanthropy at the University of Minnesota, for which we are extremely grateful, and that goes right to where you'd want it to go, student scholarships, research funding, infrastructure. Joan, you're raising the bar so high every year. Uh, 
sooner or later, it's going to be hard to jump over that bar. Uh, (laughs) Our expectation as a board of regents for you gets higher and higher. You know that. (laughs) That's okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, Obviously, when you run an institution of the size you do, uh, metropolitan area, there are always, you know, um, let's see, challenges. Let's put it as challenges. One of the challenges of the last couple of years has been public safety, on-campus safety. Uh, and you have done a lot in leading our UMPD, our University of Minnesota Police Department, in trying to provide uh, safety for our students, safety for our staff uh, uh, on campus. And we realize that uh, crime has gone up around the country, especially metropolitan areas. The University of Minnesota, no different. Uh, tell us about a few of the things that... You're talking to a father across from you here, Rich, to make sure that his daughters will feel safe uh, at the university. You've done a number of things. Can you just give us a a briefing on some of the things you've done from a public safety standpoint? Yes, absolutely. So the on-campus safety, the literal campus, is actually um, really strong. We have almost, it's not zero, but we have almost no crime on campus. Where we run into challenges is that a lot of our students live off campus or go off campus mm-hmm. to work or to you know have fun or whatever uh, one would do that they aren't in jail, right? They go wherever they would want to go. Joan, let me interrupt you. For instance, Rich sitting across from here thinks Dinky Town is part of the University of Minnesota campus. It really is not. It t- it, from a ju- yes, <laughs> from a technical jurisdiction, like who's in charge of it point of view, it is not campus. But it feels like campus, and we acknowledge that completely. But from a jurisdiction point of view, it's under the city of Minneapolis. And so as crime went up in Minneapolis and nationally, how you coordinate to address the needs of communities that are really shared, like Dinky Town or other adjacent neighborhoods, was very challenging. Because the University of Minnesota Police fully staffed would be at 51. We're actually increasing it now to 65. This would be one of the steps that you're talking about, Steve. But 51 officers covering the Twin Cities, which is in Minneapolis and St. Mm-hmm. Paul, hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of square feet of building takes that entire police force. So then to send them also into the adjacent neighborhoods then affects how we protect the campus itself. But at the same time, if our students are in adjacent neighborhoods and crime is going up in the adjacent neighborhood, then we've got to find ways to partner. That has been hard because, as we've all seen in the news, Minneapolis Police Department's way down in their headcount. and that Down about 300, I think. Yes, which is a big percentage of their workforce. And so that affects their ability to engage in patrol. So one of the very first things we did is we allocated four of our police officers into Dinkytown and other adjacent neighborhood patrol, even though that meant that we had to then stretch across the literal physical University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus. And we increased lighting, regular street lighting. And if you're in um, or around campus, you'll see they come on, they sort of look like little trailers, and then they can run a light up. Um, We increased blue lights, which 
um, have an emergency phone, which nobody, everybody thinks that's like pay phones, you know, you never use them anymore. But if what happens is someone grabs your phone, you want to have some other way to call. And also there's a psychology apparently that when you see a blue light, it just sort of makes you think of the police. And so you're inclined to behave differently. So there's some preventative nature around really good lighting that's worth the investment. We also hired a whole slate of Um, what we call campus safety ambassadors, who are not sworn armed police, but they're out in a uniform patrolling and walking around and being visible. And then really importantly, we have refreshed and deepened our partnership with the Minneapolis Police Department. So back in May of 2020, when George Floyd was killed, we were we did express our dismay that that had happened. But That became, I think, by some people misunderstood that we said we would stop working with Minneapolis police entirely. Not true. We have always done shared patrols and shared investigations. And we have now, based on our needs and also some really good work that the city of Minneapolis has been doing as they as we all try to continuously improve. I mean, there's nothing like a crisis to make you ask yourself how you might get better. And they've been doing that work. And so we've reignited, reengaged in a deepened way with Minneapolis police. And that has affected the um, the 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 robustness of the patrols. But we have Hennepin County helping too, and we have um, State Patrol helping. And you may ask yourself, isn't State Patrol on the highway? Which is true. They are experts in traffic. But actually, a lot of what has been challenging us in the adjacent neighborhoods is car-related. And so having State Patrol there is very helpful. So that all helps in thinking about safety. But in on top of that, we've also had our own UMPD, who are excellent, helping students understand how to be situationally aware. You know, if you live in a metro, there are all these wonderful opportunities, the entertainment and food and internships and life in general. You know, people choose to live in cities, those who do, for a reason. And that is all in the pro column. But there are cons, too. And you want to make sure people, um, students in particular, know how to handle those cons, how to try to get ahead of those cons. So we have digital escort apps, buddy systems, the gopher chauffeur, which is a car service that drives student home, and other ways that we encourage students to understand how to be situationally aware. Joan, you have really, really responded, I think, to the uh, actual need and the safety concerns that are there. Uh, You've talked about, Joan, the student success. Uh, you've talked about counseling services. You've talked about uh, uh, the, the student tuition. Uh, let's, for a second, as we get to the end of the interview here, talk about the front porch, as you call it. <laughs> the front porch being athletics. That's and right. you're directly responsible for that because you hire those folks, too. Uh, um, tell us some of the successes, uh, some of the opportunities we see there in uh, our front porch as we represent Minnesota. A uh, uh, football team going to win tomorrow? Of course. Is that even a question? (laughs) That's not a real question. So uh, I have to give credit. So saying that college athletics is the front porch of the university is a phrase that I sort of shamelessly stole from the athletic director when I was dean of business down in Missouri. And he was a great mentor friend, you know, friend tour to me, as I really learned um, in my first real higher ed leadership role, how much 
of a positive impact athletics can have for the institution as a whole. And in a state like ours where we are, if you're cheering for a college team, in all likelihood you're you're a gopher fan, even if you didn't go to school here. It is the first and sometimes primary contact that you or your family has with the university. So you want that to be very inviting. You Mm -hmm. want that to be really fun. You want to be proud of it. You want to feel that you've lined up with something that represents you, that it's a winner, sure, but that it's winning the right way. And so we call it the gopher way. And that is our commitment. So you know when you're cheering for the team that they're doing things the right way. And underneath that team are a whole bunch of students who are sitting in the classroom with your child trying to get their education, trying to make sure that they have their best life. Our students have incredibly high GPA. The football team's GPA, if I'm not mistaken, is a 3-4. Mm-hmm. So that uh, I don't want to say how that compared to my own GPA, but um, <laughs> see, it's a good you, GPA. <laughs> if you add riches and mine together. Still wouldn't get a 3-4. So very high graduation rates, very high GPA, and they're winning. So you don't have to choose between those two things. College athletics is in turmoil right now in terms of all of yes. the change. And it's very exciting. I mean, it's you feel like you're in the middle of a next chapter doing mm-hmm. this work right now. And it's hard to know exactly how it's all going to end, but it is going to be different. But at the end of the day, the people on the field, on the ice, on the court competing are students. And we are number one cornerstone committed to students and making sure that they get what they need and that they get all of our support. And then that way, as fans, we know that we're giving them what they need to. We had Mark Coyle on this show a couple of weeks ago. And uh, uh, he said a couple of things. First thing he said is, make sure you put in a good word for me with the president. Which is so, <laughs> yes, he so, did. So, Mark's, Mark's a great guy, and just, just hang on yeah. to him. Um, but he, he made the comment that um, he, he's very, very um, pleased with the, 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 the support that's coming from your administration for athletics. And as a longtime fan of Gopher Athletics, I can tell you that's not, it has not always looked to be the case. Um, it, it's, it's nice to see uh, from the very top a uh, good support for uh, good athletics. Yeah, well, it, 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 he makes it easy, as do all of our coaches and ultimately all of our student-athletes. Yeah, right. See, Rich wants to go to the Rose Bowl sometime soon, mm-hmm. and the next step in doing that would be beating Colorado tomorrow. That's, That's right. So I, I am quite fond of Pasadena. So, yes, I mean... It, it is be. a lovely place. It so is. <laughs> when, but as uh, Coach Fleck would say, we are 1-0 and in the Colorado season, and so we're going to win tomorrow, and then we're going to win the week after that, and, and that ends in Pasadena. I like that. That would be a nice way to go. That would be fantastic. Uh, Joan Gable, your service here at the University of Minnesota has been wonderful for the three years you've been here. Our performance is outstanding and we get measured by that performance uh you've raised the bar in many many areas uh so we'd expect more next year than this year uh but that's just a challenge to you my well, friend. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for uh being here with us today uh thank you for sharing your insights uh, uh very very informative a wonderful conversation with a rich i think you can say a very very nice person a very nice person very impressive person thank you for coming 
to to the University of Minnesota. And thank you for coming to KYMN Studios today. We appreciate you you being here. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, folks, that will conclude this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 a.m. My name is Rich Larson. On behalf of myself, my co-host, Steve Swiggum, thank you all for listening. And thank you again, President Joan Gable, for being here. Please, folks, tell your family and friends about public policy this week. It's our hope that this show can be a small step to having important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and solutions, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Uh, Thank you again for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We hope you'll join our show again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.